0: Well, good morning, Restoration. Good morning. <laughs> Running away already? <laughs> My wife, Jan, was also blessed at the uh, that IF conference, that gathering of kindred hearts and spirits. And uh, uh, Shauna, she also enjoyed sitting at the table with, with the ladies that she was with. And while she was uh, at that conference, uh, gathering, uh, I have was blessed too because I was home babysitting two of my seven k- grandkids. That's so much fun. We had a great time. I have plenty of toys in my closet. It's, it's all good. Pastor Kevin has been taking us on a mining expedition into the Gospel of Mark, and he's been bringing to the surface many wonderful nuggets of truth. And this morning we're going to continue that expedition by digging into the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5 verses 1 through 20. Mark 5, verses 1 through 20. If you'd like to turn there, please do. If you don't have a Bible, I just encourage you to raise your hand and someone will come around and give you a Bible. There we go. I know that we're going to project these verses on the screen, but it's good to have God's Word in your hands so that you can begin to navigate through that and then do that uh, uh, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Just keep going as you have God's Word available to you. Many years ago, when I was a student at the University of Northern Colorado, I met another student by the name of Ted Gould. Ted was a rich kid. He was born in Schenectady, New York, and he didn't mind paying the uh, added out-of-state tuition to go to UNC because he loved to ski at Vail and Aspen. Now, uh, we would be the most unlikely uh, candidates to establish a relationship. We had nothing in common. He was rich, I was poor. He skied, I didn't. He was single, I was married. He was not a Christian, I was. And yet in the few classes we had at the university, uh, we struck up a good conversation and it blossomed into a friendship. And I discovered, lo and behold, we did have something in common. In addition to skiing, Ted Gould loved to fish. Gary, where are you? (laughs) And I'm a recovering fishaholic. And so I instantly invited him to go fishing with me. And and he gladly accepted. And we go into the Rockies and different rivers and streams. We had a lot of fun. All the while, I'm sharing the gospel with him. And uh, we even went camping together. And I remember one night sitting around the campfire. And Ted said to me, he said, Jim, I think I could accept Christianity. I believe in God. And I could believe in Jesus and angels and heaven. But... To really come up on board with this, I'd also have to accept the reality of the devil, demons, demon possession, and hell. And he says, I don't accept that. To me, that's just absurd. That's ridiculous. And he characterized the devil in a cartoon fashion. He would say, I can't imagine this devil with red pajamas running around with a pitchfork. Well, I can't either. But that's his his visual of what this would be about. And no matter what I shared with him, I shared with him certain passages related to that subject. And it didn't help. I couldn't help him over that hurdle. The university had a holiday break. My wife and I left for a while and we came back and there were several messages on our answering machine and they were from Ted. And Ted was frantic. And he said, Jim, as soon as you get this message, call me. Jim, call me. Jim, call me right away. So I called him. He said, Jim, you got to come over to my apartment right now and bring that Bible of yours. Okay? So I went over and he says, while you were gone... I saw a movie called The Exorcist. <laughs> he said, did you see that? I said, no, no, I don't think I did. And I don't think I will. He goes, well, Jim, there's this girl in the movie. And her head spins around. And she speaks with different voices. And she levitates and things move in her bedroom. And she she throws up this extra strength industrial vomit like it's coming from a fire hydrant. Jim, show me in the Bible where these things are. Tell me once again how Jesus has power over these these demons. And so I did. And as I'm reading to him, I realized the barrier that he had was gone. Hollywood did what I couldn't do. Who knew? Who knew? Thank you, Paramount. And when I was done reading some of these passages, I said, Ted, can you think of anything now that would keep you from putting your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And he said, no, nothing. I said, would you like to pray with me? And he says, yes, absolutely. And we prayed together. Now, I'm sharing this with you because if you're in the Ted Gould camp, if the subject that bothered him bothers you, and you have a bias against this, you're going to have a bit of a problem with the passage that we're going to look at this morning because it's about demon possession on steroids. Okay. So, uh, before we begin this, this excursion, let me also say that I don't think that guest speakers need to rely on catchy, sensational titles to sell the message. I think the message should sell itself. I think it's just undignified and unnecessary. So, uh, <laughs> I I came up with mine a little conservative. I, I hope it's not over the top. Pastor <laughs> Kevin has been talking about. Uh, a power surge in Mark chapter 4, and there will be several power surges through this text that we're going to look at already. In fact, in Mark chapter 4, there's this surge of natural power. And since he's already read that for us, we're not going to go back and read the passage again, but in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, there's an account of Jesus getting in the boat with his disciples, and on the sea there's this huge windstorm very violent is about to destroy them and jesus wakes up he rebukes the wind and the sea and there's this calmness jesus demonstrated the power over the forces of nature now when we come to the shore there's another power surge it's the surge of demonic power a surge of demonic power so if you'll follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 5 of Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He, had, he, had, he lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore not even with a chain for he had often been bound with shackles and chains but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Can you imagine what Hollywood would do with that? This is a terrifying picture. Such a display of raw, fierce, violent power. That's coming not from within him, from his own human nature. But it's coming from somewhere else. You see, we deal with natural forces from the outside. But this is an invasion of a force from within. This is coming from the spirit world. And somehow, in some way, these beings have entered into this man and have seized his will. In the most violent and destructive manner. Now, today we might want to write that off as just some psychotic episode. But clearly by breaking the chains and the shackles and the behavior of this man would indicate that there's something far more sinister at work here. Demonstrating a power beyond human ability and control. There's no question that whatever had seized this man was not what God would allow, as we will soon see, There's another surge of power coming upon the scene to counteract this surge of demonic power. And Jesus, who demonstrated the power over natural forces, will now demonstrate the power over spiritual forces as well. So, in verses 6 through 13, there is this surge of divine power. If you'll read along with me, verses 6 through 13. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the sea. Have you ever been driving a car and a bee enters the car? Especially a nasty hornet. And you're trying to drive. And you're trying to watch the road. Now, for me, I'm bothered by the presence of that one little bee. I want to know where it's at. If it's over there, close to the windshield, I'm okay. But as it gets closer and closer, especially somewhere over here, I don't like that. So we're bothered by these little things. Uh, Maybe just one, it's all it takes. But what would happen if an entire swarm of bees came in the window of your car while you're driving? Not one, but thousands upon thousands. I can tell you what I would do. I would wreck my car. Wouldn't matter what's in the next lane, because that's where I'm going. I'm getting off this road. I'm going to leap out of the car and run for my life. This is not the presence of one bothersome demonic hornet. This is a being possessed by a swarm of unclean spirits. His name is Legion, which literally means 6,000. Jesus has taken his disciples right into a demonic hornet's nest. And they're swarming in and around this one guy. Talk about the magnitude of demonic power. It's on display here in so many ways. How do they know that there's that many demons inside this man? Well, in negotiating the exit strategy for these demons, they suggest, how about if we go out of this man and we go into the pigs? How about that? Is that okay? Will that work? Jesus gave them permission to do this. It suits the purpose. So he immediately left this man and entered into the pigs. Two thousand of them went over into the sea and drowned. Two thousand. How many are in this guy? He said, we are many. Now I know I have problems with this. So do you. How do you make sense of this? How do you try to understand all of this? You see, what we tend to do is project physical properties into the spirit world and try to make it work. But it's like trying to make a square peg fit into a round hole. One of the things we demand of the spirit world that's true for us is that personal existence requires a physical body. How can you exist without a physical body? In order to think, to will, you have to have a brain. Because according to the Wizard of Oz, if you don't, you're nothing more than a scarecrow. You have to have a body to be a being. Well, we do. It's true for us. But it's not true for them. In the spirit world, these physical requirements do not hold true. If they had physical bodies, why would they need yours? What would be so attractive and compelling about them swarming inside this man if they had their own? You see, there's something about us in our nature that can't be duplicated in the spirit world. And so they come to us. There's this crossing over. Now, to magnify the problem, not only do beings exist without bodies, many beings who exist can occupy a human body. How can thousands of spirit beings dwell in and command one person? Unless they're itty bitty little beings and thousands of them are required to fill up one person. Again, those spatial temporal conditions don't apply to them. It applies to us. So we have the swarming of demonic beings inside this man and we're left with questions that are not answered for us how did they get in access to him what happened that he was open to them and how is it that they could possess him to such a magnitude and with so many we're just not given all of these answers but mark simply writes out by divine inspiration, the event as it unfolded. And in this this huge swarming of demons, Jesus arrives to exercise absolute divine power over them. What is one being or thousands to Christ? It makes no difference. Jesus has absolute power and control over the entire spirit world. Now, his power... Over these demons is evidenced not only by the destructive behavior of the demoniac and the 2,000 pigs that went into the sea, but also by what these demons know. What is it these demons know that maybe you and I don't know? Or we are confused about? Let me suggest there are at least three things these demons know. First, these demons know who Jesus is. Is anybody confused in the spirit world? I don't think so. When he arrived on the shore, immediately the demoniac came before him and he identified him. He said, Jesus, you are the Son of the Most High God. Now, this was not an exception. Jesus didn't enlighten them in a special, unique way and leave all the demons elsewhere in the dark. This is always the response whenever Jesus encountered a demoniac. At the beginning of his public ministry, he went right to the synagogue, and there was one. Right there, sitting with the other guys. There was an unclean spirit. And as soon as Jesus entered the synagogue, that demoniac looked at him, and he said... I know who you are. The Holy One of God. There's no delay. There's no debate. No listening to what Jesus had to say or the miracles he might perform. Just walking in. This demon recognized him at once. And this was the case wherever he went. In Mark 3, it says... Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. You see, the evidence tells us, unequivocally, in the spirit world, there's no identity crisis. Every being in the spirit world knows who Jesus is. And it doesn't matter whether unclean spirits or clean spirits. For example, when God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth from the spirit world into Mary's world to announce the birth of Jesus Christ, he said concerning Jesus, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And of course, Mary was troubled by that. She didn't know how that could work because she was a virgin. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Every being in the spirit world, without exception, knows who Jesus is. There are no agnostics there. There are no atheists there. They all know him. They recognize His pre-existent nature as the Son of God is not diminished. It's not blotted out by His human nature via the incarnation. They know Him. They have always known Him. We are the ones who are confused. Aren't we? We're the ones who have a problem with His identity. No one else does. Just us. After Jesus had been ministering publicly with his disciples for quite some time, and he asked them, "Well, okay, who do these people say that I am?" And what? What a range of responses. Oh, well, some people think you're Ezekiel. You're John the Baptist. You're Jeremiah. Maybe some other prophet. You know, the guys out there that don't like you at all—they think you're a demoniac. You're possessed. And the reason why you can cast out demons is because you're working in league with Beelzebub, the the prince of demons. Talk about stinking thinking. And today, ask people, who do you think Jesus is? I mean, the spectrum is just blown out the window. Some people say, well, I don't think he existed at all. Or if he did, the Jesus of history is not the Christ of the Bible At best, he was probably a good moral teacher, a a Jewish reformer. But you read the Bible and now he's become a demigod. A being worthy of worship who performs miracles and he says things by his own authority. He never did that. He never said that. The church had to make it up. It's totally fabricated. Maybe he's a false teacher. Maybe he was just a good man. But some people think nothing of him. doesn't matter who he was. Who cares? Whoever he was he lived a thousand years ago, how in the world would he relate to me? So this whole wide range of identity concerning Christ, it relates to us, not them. Don't think the cosmos is confused about Jesus. No, we are. Just us. Maybe just you. Maybe just me. Now, because they know who Jesus is, they respond accordingly. What do you do in the presence of someone you know is the Son of the Most High God? Well, what do you do? Well, uh, it says in Mark chapter 5, this demoniac who couldn't be controlled by anybody did what all demons apparently do in the presence of... Of the Most High. It says in Mark 5 once again, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. That's what demons do in the presence of the Son of the Most High. That's what a demon does, falls down before him. Was that an exception? Again, not so. This was always seemingly the response. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him. This physical act of prostration that they had controlled this man to do was a demonstration that they had recognized absolute authority in their midst. They bow before him. They fall down before him. Again, we're the only ones confused about that. Whether or not to acknowledge his lordship over our lives, again, we got the problem. Sometimes we think that what we really want is a divine firefighter to put out all of our fires, but we really don't want the Lord to take control of the throne of our lives. We don't want to bow the knee, we just want fire insurance. Or we want Jesus to get the junk out of the trunk while we're still having the right to drive the car. Or maybe we'll be gracious and say, Jesus is my co-pilot, or I'm the co-pilot, but I still want my hands on the stick somewhere, regardless of what side of the plane I'm on. We don't want to turn over control. We don't want to acknowledge the lordship of Christ over our lives. Again, identity crisis, crisis of lordship, That's us. That's us. It's not them. They fall down before him. Not us. So they know who Jesus is. They also know what Jesus will do. What would Jesus do if he came into their region and saw a man who was held captive by demons? What would Jesus do? Well, it's the nature of Jesus to set people free. From captivity, they knew this. They knew they could no longer stay any in this man than those pigs could stay in that herd, uh, feeding uh, where they were. They had to leave. Why? Because it's the nature of the Most High to release those who are held in bondage. In Luke chapter four, as Jesus began his public ministry, he quoted reco- from Isaiah sixty-one. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was in the presence of someone who was held captive, bound to these demons. And yet it's the nature of God to set men free. And he cast them out. And as a result, this man was liberated from that which oppressed him and held him captive. And they knew what was going to happen. They knew they couldn't stay. They also had a sense of their own destiny. You know what terrified them the most? As soon as they saw him. Something about Jesus absolutely terrified them. We're usually terrified of their presence, but they were terrified of his. Why? Because they were afraid he was going to torment them. Now, why do you suppose they thought that? Well, Jesus had spoken about a time of final judgment which involved them. There's going to be a time when they are going to be cast into the lake of fire and they will be tormented forever. They know it's coming. And what terrified them is the thought that Jesus was there now. And they thought, that time had come. Oh, we thought it was the final judgment. Is he going to come to torment us now? In Matthew, the same event is recorded. And Matthew adds this time parameter. And behold, uh, they cried out, What have you to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Before the time. They know their destiny. Jesus spoke about that coming time, that final judgment, when He would come and He would exercise judgment over men and over spirit beings such as these. He said, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him... He will gather all the nations and He will separate people one from the other as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then He will say to those on the left, depart from Me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, the righteous into eternal life. You see, there's destiny ahead. And the demons know they're part of it. They know their destiny. Revelation 20, verse 10 And the devil who had delivered them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And we have issues with that too, don't we? How can a loving God allow someone to suffer torment forever? But God is infinite. And if you reject God's love and mercy, what's left? It's called justice. You get what you deserve. The demons who tormented this man will get what they deserve. Torment in return. See, when you reject God's mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, there is this left to you is accountability. Some people think, oh, I can't wait till I die. Because when I die, I will cease to exist. But death does not result in personal extinction. It results in personal accountability. The demons know this. Again, we're so confused. We think our destiny is limited to just the years that you are existing right now. Not so. And they know it. They have a destiny. So do you. So do I. So what is it that you know about Jesus? What confuses you? What do you think Jesus will ever do for you or to you? And have you thought about your eternal destiny? Well, they know what theirs is. What about you? Now, to all of this power, these power surges that are arising, the surge of natural power in Mark chapter 4 that Pastor Kevin covered, a surge of demonic power, a surge of divine power, we have one more surge. And it's in verses 14 through 20. It's a surge of human power. Let's read this. A surge, surging of human power. In Mark 5, verses 14 through 20, it says The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the, in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which means ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You might think, well, in light of all these power surges, us humans have little, if any, power at all. I mean, we're so helpless to the forces of nature, to, uh, to drought, to snow or no snow, to uh, hurricanes and, and tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis and all these forces. When they hit us, we just feel so helpless. What can we do? What power do you have? And God forbid you should be overcome by the forces of evil. What can you do? You feel helpless. Maybe there's some addictive power in your life right now, or emotional power, or destructive habits. You feel helpless just dealing with that. What power do you and I have at all? And yet, in this passage, we read that God has given us a unique power. First, we have been given the power by God to reject Him. We have the power to do that. These men who came to evaluate the situations, they, they looked at the man who was once demon-possessed, and now he's clothed and sane in his right mind, and things are going well for him. You know that storm that, that was calmed by, by Jesus? The storm in his soul was now calmed as well. They saw that. And they also saw what happened to their pigs. And now you have to make a choice. Man or pigs? What is it going to be? Do you value the power of Christ to forgive, to heal, to set someone free? Or you are so upset by this power that you are afraid God could also take away some toys, some source of wealth for you. And you don't want that power in your life. They chose the pigs. They told Jesus to leave. Depart. You go away We don't want you in our lives. And amazingly, Jesus got in the boat and he left. We have that power. We have the power to say no to God. I don't want you in my life. I refuse you. And God grants that power to you, at least for now. You know you come in here and God is not in your life and you don't want him in your life and for whatever reason you're here for the time and you leave and you decide I still don't want God in your life, that's exactly what's going to happen. You will leave here without God in your life. It's your choice to make. God stands at the door and he knocks. He stands at the door of your life and he knocks. He makes himself known. And on the inside... When you hear him, and you open the door, then he comes in. He knocks, maybe loudly, but he'll never tear the door off the hinges of your soul and tell you, I'm coming in. Try to stop me. You see, there's no evidence of divine possession, but there is demon possession. You see, the door that's locked to God is locked on the inside, not the outside. God desires to come into your life, to have fellowship with you, to forgive you, to set you free from the things that oppress you. But you're the one who has to open the door to that. Otherwise, God could never say to us that we are to love him with all of our hearts. You can't make anyone love you. God doesn't force his will upon the will of another, especially one created in his own image. You can say no to God. But just remember this. If you say no to God and keep the door of your soul locked and keep God on the outside, just remember what you're taking with you on the inside. You're taking with you your sin, your shame, your guilt, Your helplessness and your hopelessness with you. And if this has been the case for you for years upon years, how has it been working for you? For you will have to face the forces that surround you and that hold you captive. You will have to do that without God. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's bitterness. Whatever it is, you're going to have to face it without God. Because why? Because you locked the door to Him. And he can't free you. He can set you free. But he will not force freedom on anyone because freedom that's forced is not freedom. It's not liberty, it's oppression. You have the power to say no to God today, just as they did. We want to make sure the pigs are, the rest of the pigs are okay. We don't want this power in our lives. Go. And he left. But you also have the power to receive Christ, to say yes to him. God gives you that power. When the demoniac was set free from these demons, and he was clothed, remember, you you couldn't even put clothes on him. You couldn't put him in a house. You couldn't put him in a synagogue. He couldn't be in the city. He had to be among the tombs among the dead. That's the only place that this guy could ever be. He was so captive to his alien presence. But once he was set free, he was in his right mind, and now he could make choices again. And he chose to be with Christ. He begged him to go with him, to be with Jesus. He had the power to receive him, to have Christ in his life. Isn't it ironic the dichotomy here? Same power gets two different results. There's a group of men saw everything that took place, and they begged Jesus to depart. This demoniac, who had a front row seat to what had just taken place, he begged Jesus that he might go with him. That's the power that we have. And Jesus, although he did not permit him to go with him, left behind the greatest witness. That he could possibly choose. The demoniac. Who had no message. Was given a mission. I want you to stay. You see Jesus knew he had to leave. He was going to leave. But he left behind a witness. To those people who had rejected him. Who know you stay. I want you to go home. Imagine what that would be like to someone who had not been home for, for who knows how long. Go home tell your friends, tell your relatives about what God has done to you and the mercy is shown to you. It says that man responded, he went home, told everybody, and then he expanded his mission to those 10 cities, the surrounding cities. In the last verse it says, and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Oh, wait a minute. Isn't that our mission? Isn't that what we're here to do? Just like he did? And we went away and began to proclaim in Yakima how much Jesus had done for us. Isn't that us? Isn't that our mission? If you choose to follow Christ, that's why we're in Yakima, is to know Christ and to what? Make Christ known. You will know that you're doing your job, that you're following God's will, not by the pews that are filled, but by the people who are being set free. You see, liberty follows on the wings of Christ. Everywhere he went, he set people free. Now let's bring this to a close. How about a power surge this morning? A surge of human power. You can demonstrate that by making a choice. Maybe you need to say it before God right now. I don't want you in my life. I want the blessings. I just don't want you. I'm not going to give it up. I want to stay on this throne until the bitter end. You just calm the chaos. Or you can say, Lord Jesus Here it is. I give you the throne of my life. I step down. I bow down before you. Lord Jesus, be my Savior. Be my Lord. Let me follow you. Let me be your witness. In Yakima, wherever you choose, take control of the throne of my life. How about a power surge this morning? Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus. Pray this morning for all of us. You've given us power. Power to respond to you. We can respond by just simply saying no. Oh, Lord God, help us to know why we're resisting you. Would you reveal to each one of us the barriers that keep us from putting our trust in You. Oh, Lord, is there anyone here this morning who's angry at You? Who's bitter? who's feel that they've been just shortchanged by the life that You've blessed them with and, and they don't know what to do with it? Oh, God, I pray that they would know what their rejection is, where it's coming from and Why? Then, Lord, as you broke down the barrier that Ted Gould had, would you break down barriers this morning? Just don't break down doors to our souls, but break down these barriers. Oh, God, help us to know why we don't want you in our lives. And now, Lord, to that one person, that one person who is sitting here, who wants you, who wants you in, in their life, oh, God, Help them seize the power to say yes to you. God ask while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, where are you in relationship to God? Is God still on the outside? Or is I on the inside? Who's sitting on the throne of your life right now? Is it you or is it Christ? Where are you? Right now. What decisions are you making before God? If it's the desire of your heart. To receive Christ. Then as I pray. I offer up this simple prayer Lord. Lord would. Maybe someone in their heart would. Would repeat this after themselves silently. Lord Jesus. We need you. Our hearts have been closed to you. All this time. And now. Lord, by an exercise of our will, the power you've given to us, we open the door, we surrender, we give our lives to you, Lord, right now. Please come into our lives. Forgive us. Set us free. Help us to know the power of your presence. And for those who have invited you in, and somehow we've reclaimed the throne of our lives once again, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be surrendered once again to you. For it is not just a clean room that you want to take control of, but a soul, a life. Oh, help us to be surrendered to you. Lord, I pray also that this church might be faithful to you. That we might proclaim these, these truths to those who are bound, who are in captivity. For we too have been made captive. And we've been set free by your mercy. I pray that we as Believers in your son Jesus Christ will step forward and continue to make Christ known. For this we pray in Jesus' name.